Welcome to the Expansion Candidate Podcast, where we talk all things Big 12 football. I'm your host, Ian Boyd. Uh, this week, we've got Tim Fitzgerald on, the publisher of GoPowerCat.com, a big-time insider expert on Kansas State football, and a guy I've not talked to before, which is wrong, because I love Kansas State football. Welcome aboard, Tim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I wanted to start off with this question and then kind of kind of go from, from how you responded to it. If your life was on the line, who would you bet on to win the Big 12 this season? If my life was on the line, that's a good way to put it. No no Vegas odds or anything. Just pick a team or you die. Uh, Oklahoma State. All right. Well, I, like why their, would you... I like their schedule. They've got both Kansas State and Oklahoma at home. Yes. Yes. I was looking at that a while back. It seemed like uh, the schedule fell out pretty well for Oklahoma State and Kansas State in particular. Yep. One thing that I, I have a hesitation about that I, I've heard other people like Scipio Tex mention is that Oklahoma State very rarely beats Oklahoma. And it's possible that to win the Big 12 title, they would have to do it twice. So how, do you, how would well, you feel about that? That's a good point. It, it would yeah. depend on who Oklahoma State would catch in that Big 12 title game. You know, I think the wild card in this this conference this season, not that they're going to be in the title game, but I think Texas is good enough to beat anyone uh, at any time. They've always had talent, but I just have a feeling this is the year it's going to converge with the right head coach and, and the right level of talent. Uh, enough to really give the race a shakeup whenever whenever it uh, starts to set into place. I feel like Texas might just go beat someone. Yeah, well, and also, the I mean, the Big 12 championship game makes it such that a team like Texas, if they catch fire in time, even if they have an early loss, like say they lose early to USC and Oklahoma, but then uh, they catch fire late and they're at the top of the two loss pile or something like that. They could be in the championship game. That would be uh, that would be just the thing this year. I'm sure the rest of the Big 12 would be really excited if if Texas made a late surge and then <laughs> finished second in the conference, but then knocked off Oklahoma State or somebody in the in the title game. Well, um, I I don't know much about who's going to win. I know this: that the championship game will screw up the conference. Because that's how the Big Twelve works. Yes, that that seems a that seems like a reasonable bet. Normally, you would assume if Texas or Oklahoma won the Big Twelve championship game, that would help the conference. Maybe because it, it uh, that's the team that the playoff committee is going to want to choose is so Texas or Oklahoma. But no. not if Texas has two early losses to USC and somebody else, then that's not going to happen. So maybe so maybe that's the best bet. <laughs> That, that the system is set up for the Oklahomas and Texases and Ohio States and USC's and Alabamas. If you, if you have that name behind you that goes back to the 1970s or uh, early 80s, you're at a huge advantage over a Kansas State, TCU, or Baylor, or even Oklahoma State that, that might hop up and uh, have the exact same credentials, record, resume, everything as a Texas and Oklahoma, and yet not get the same consideration. It's a shameful flaw in the system. Yeah, well, we've seen it at play before already when uh, TCU and Baylor got left out. I think there's a there's there's the uh, the prestige and the uh, the like the kind of the good old boys network that works against those schools. I think there's the sort of legitimate, semi-legitimate fear that maybe those teams are not quite as talented as the big guys, and if they get in, put into a playoff, then they're going to get blown out and hurt ratings. And I think there's also the fear of how many people are going to tune in to watch, you know, a, a Baylor in the, t- in the playoffs as opposed to a Ohio state. There's some truth to that. You know, I mean, 
but I, for me, I think it's all about the preconception of TV ratings. You know, who's going to draw the big ratings? Well, we know by evidence, if the game's good, people watch it. I mean, when you get to that level of the season, whether it be a bowl game or a playoff game, if it's a good game, people stay locked in on it. If it's not, they go off and uh, have a shot with their buddies and don't pay attention. So um, I just think it's it's just so ingrained in TV executives' heads. Yeah, from, from the get-go at Texas or in Alabama or Ohio State, we'll bring more eyeballs initially to the table. But if we're talking about a semifinal game, people are going to watch it. They're going to watch it, and who knows? Maybe the story of a Kansas State or Baylor or TCU would be the great underdog story entering the playoff, and and uh, all those schools of like backgrounds, those fans will tune in uh, to watch the underdog. We just won't. I don't. I fear we will never know because they'll never let a team in unless they kick the door down with an undefeated season, and the Big Twelve just made that even more difficult on schools by adding the silly conference championship. Well, that's true. I mean, you can see that in both the NCAA tournament, which regularly features Cinderella underdogs that people love to tune in to watch. You can just imagine in today's Twitter era that if uh, the early playoff game featured a Baylor or somebody and they started taking it to a traditional power like Alabama, then even if the initial ratings weren't good, you know people would start tuning in all across the country. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um so since you've answered as you did to the, to the initial question, my next question is uh, why not Kansas State? Uh, simply for me, it comes down to where that game's played. In, in that series between K-State and Oklahoma State, uh, tie goes to the home team almost every season. It's been competitive games for the most part, very close physical games, but the home team almost always comes out on top. Uh, and so that's why I, I, you know, I think it's really a three-team race between Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, and Kansas State. If if I had to pick someone, uh, and I wasn't going to die, I'd probably pick K State. This is when Bill Snyder really cashes in everything. Uh, but um, if I got to die at the end of this, I, I want to go down with a mullet. And I just like their home field. I I think they're they're better at their home field. And you know what? Uh, you can take all those Oklahoma statistics and toss them out the window. Kansas State has never beaten Oklahoma at home when it's coached by Bob Stoops. You know what? He's not the coach anymore. Um, And I I think a lot of people in this conference and even in Norman are setting aside the Bob Stoops factor. They wanted to be critical of him when in reality he is one of college football's premier coaches. And you can't take him off the sideline and put him, replace him with, you know, a 32, 33-year-old guy who has limited college football and life experiences and expect the same results. I think Oklahoma's going to go through some growing pains here, even though they have a ton of talent. Well, I, I agree. And, and in a sense, the high expectations that they're going to have as a result of having all their line back and Baker Mayfield back um, could work against him. But the way I figured that that would go down is that I thought, okay, without Bob Stoops, Maybe he's the only thing keeping their defense from going from a, you know, mediocre last year to just outright horrible. I don't know if I trust Mike Stoops to carry on that tradition without Bobby around to do quality control. But Lincoln agree. Riley is already. It's we've seen some suggestion that Lincoln Riley may be thinking the same thing since he already has his guy McNeil in place to potentially take over. 
I, I think one of my more likely scenarios for Oklahoma this year is that they go up to Columbus, get absolutely pummeled, and then Mike Stoops gets the stinky boot, and they put McNeil in charge. Wouldn't surprise me. It really wouldn't. I know there's been a lot of pressure on Mike, and really the only uh, back he had, backup he had, was his brother was the head coach, and that's gone. But anytime you change coordinator in midseason, it's not good either. So uh, I just think it's going to be you know growing pains for that program as they sh- they shift over from a guy who picked up Oklahoma football off the rocks uh, and, and got it going again almost overnight and um, put them back to where they probably belong in college football where the Big 12 needs them. Uh, And right now, if you're the Big 12 and you've got Texas and Oklahoma in the hands of new coaches, you got to be a little nervous because if, you know, the way this nation of college football views the Big 12, it's those two teams and then the rest of the guys that are just kind of hanging on to their coattails. And I don't know if that's fair or right, but it's how it is. Of course, that opens up an opportunity for Kansas State this year to make good for Snyder. Uh, what, what do you see as the main um, landmine or uh, limiting factor that w- that would stop Kansas State uh, other than the schedule from uh, making good this year? Well, they've got some holes on this defense. You know, you know Kansas State's one of those programs uh, that a lot of pundits always judge by what they lost and what they don't have back from the year before, as opposed to some programs that always get judged by what they're gaining. There's some holes on this defense, there's no doubt, but I think they feel okay about their linebackers. They feel like they have depth at defensive end to replace Jordan Willis. Maybe not the big playmaker, but they were good you know, as a defense before Jordan Willis emerged as a playmaker, essentially in a senior season. Uh, probably their biggest hole on defense, though, is one of their safety spots where Dante Barnett had been a, a five-year guy and was injured all of 2015, and it showed on the defense. So they, they're going to have to find someone to step into that role. It's kind of quarterbacks the back end of that defense the way K-State plays it. And in the, in the Big 12, if if you're a little bit lost, if you're hesitant on the back end of your defense, you're going to give up points you're going to give up points real quick. So uh, that position is really crucial. Offensively, K-State's going to be as good, in, in my belief, since the 2003 Big 12 championship team. This, this offense has a lot of talent, a lot of young talent. Uh, they have a, a quarterback returning, which – uh, really is kind of rare under Bill Snyder, and typically when he does have a quarterback returning, they win 11 games, at least nine, and Jesse Urich really blossomed as the season went on, and he was never healthy, and now he's healthy, and we'll see if he can stay healthy, first of all, uh, but I, I think uh, if he does, Kansas State's offense is going to be much more potent uh, than previous teams, and, and they won't be so much ball control as they'll be able to answer if they get into a slugfest with someone. It's funny, you mentioned that 2013 team, which was also very good on defense. Uh, They got killed in one game against Baylor when their starting strong safety, I think it was Ty Zimmerman that year, went out and then Dante Barnett stepped in and was not ready. Yeah, that Um, was 2012, yeah. Um, Oh, you're right, you're right. Yep, and that's exactly what happened. And a little dirty secret about that team is uh, Arthur Bryant, who was an all-Big 12 linebacker, Backer, excuse me, Arthur Brown, who was an old Big 12 linebacker that season, is, you know, running around making plays. But it was Ty Zimmerman at the time who made sure he was in the right spot at, at the snap of the ball. He sometimes had trouble getting lined up, and then his instincts would take over. Zimmerman goes out against, you know, right when Baylor clicks. And not just for the season, 
that literally was the game that changed Baylor football into what we kind of now know them as. Uh, if you look at the, the chart, that's when the, the line starts going up and Baylor has all their success on that night in Waco. And yeah, Ty Zimmerman being gone and, and overall Dante Barnett didn't play horrible himself, but I think everyone was a little out of sync without Zimmerman. That is exactly my fear for this team, you know, early in this year until that, that safety spot gets locked down and, and there becomes a greater sense of comfort that everyone's getting lined up right. Well, if that's the crucial factor there, then does that make Sean Newland the favorite to win the job since he's played the position before as a senior, has been in the program for a long time? No, uh, probably not. You know, Eli Walker, who's a junior college transfer coming in, probably right now, and of course, um, you know, they're in the great Bill Snyder eclipse when they go behind the sun and you don't know what's going on in a football practice right now. But Eli Walker heading into camp was probably the guy to watch. You know, they had some other guys, Dante Goolsby, or Denzel Goolsby, excuse me. Boy, I'm struggling with names. Denzel has great potential, played receivers, was to safety. Yeah, he just hasn't kind of found his footing at that safety spot. Uh, and there's another Juco transfer, a walk-on, a young man named McPherson, uh, that they really like a lot. And so I, I think they'll find someone, uh, but it won't be someone with a ton of experience. Sean Newland has really struggled to – do all those things himself, let alone uh, get lined up correctly. It's going to be the walk-on. <laughs> it, you, you got it. You know, somehow you just know they went and found a walk-on that uh, that they love and is ready to earn it. And at Kansas State, the walk-ons get the equal chance as anyone on a scholarship, which is not true most places, uh, and it really pays off in the end. That's the second time I've heard that name today. I'm, I'm just going to take that as a sign that McPherson is – is the guy? How long has he been there? Did he just? Is he a preferred walk-on from one of the yeah, local Juco's? Yeah, here at the start of camp, or maybe the summer. I'm not sure. We didn't know about him really till media day when the coaches started talking about him, and he was there. And um, one of the things they like about him is natural leadership capability. He's just one of those guys people gravitate to, uh, and he's picking things up. So, uh, as you know, as it mo- any coach likes, but Bill Snyder adores his competition. And so if he's got competition there, he means he's going to play everyone against each other until someone really emerges. Well, that'll be interesting. Uh, Two other holes I see on the defense are the sort of outside linebacker position that Elijah Lee played, and then also the nickel. Not so much because I think Donnie Starks was a legend, but just because, you know, the new guy is somewhat of an unknown. Uh, What's the the story out of camp for, for those positions so far? Well, the nickel's probably going to be a, a, a guy, Cree Moore, who's been in the system, but a special teams guy. Uh, when there were some injuries and they shuffled that secondary a little bit later in the year, uh, Starks moved over to corner, which is what Bill Snyder likes to do, and Cree Moore, who is a corner, moved in to that spot. It's weird because a nickel is typically more of a safety type, but Bill Snyder likes to use more of a corner type uh, in that position, and maybe that's just a function of being in the Big 12. Uh, and quite often that probably. nickel is actually your third corner. Uh, so if there's an injury, they move across the end or excuse me, the outside linebacker spot. Uh, there's some guys that are in the system. The main guy linebackers, Trent tanking. He's really not the outside guy. He's more the middle guy. And he's got it. A former walk on, uh, who was pressed into duty late in the year and was really good. He's been really good on special teams. He's elected a captain. So, uh, by his teammates. So obviously he's got some real leadership capabilities, uh, and they expect him to be very sound. Uh, keep an eye on a Juco transfer to Quan Patton at that other spot. A big physical guy. 
um, runs extremely well, uh, and that's what they that lose with uh, losing Elijah Lee. And um, but he's a lot bigger, more physical than Lee was. He's got some of those physical attributes that translate to the NFL, where Lee's struggling right now and struggled in the draft because of that. Uh, but they've got uh, you know other guys, Jade Kirby and um, Sam Sizelove, some other linebackers that have been in the system a while. Uh, and they've got a slew of really young guys that just don't have the experience yet. They don't feel like they're quite there, but, you know, if forced into duty, maybe they'll grow into the role. That's such a tricky spot because he ends up in so much space in Kansas State's defense yeah. against Big 12 offenses. Um, it it's really seems like it's it's literally a dilemma of the guy that knows where to be in the right spot, which might be, like, size love because he's just been around so long. Or do you do you take a chances with the guy who might be limited and but knows where to be, or do you get the guy that can get all the places he needs to be but may not necessarily know to be there? Um, um, I really don't. I yeah. feel like I've seen Snyder choose both ways, like what you were saying earlier with Brown. It seems like Brown was a guy where it was like, "We'll just take our chances." Yeah, um, because he was that special. But typically, Bill Snyder will take the two steps slower intelligent walk-on kid or, you know, uh, size love is a scholarship guy, but uh, he'll take that guy over the, the really big, fast, strong guy uh, that might get there faster once he gets going as opposed to the guy who gets going immediately because uh, he knows what he's doing. Uh, and that's probably who will start early in the year with the idea that, um, okay, big, strong guy, you got to catch up. You know, you gotta, you, you're not just getting this by default because you're a great athlete. You're going to have to earn this on the practice field. Uh, and that's the way Bill Snyder's operated from day one. And I would assume that without nailed down answer at strong safety behind him also, that kind of yeah. decreases the chances. Um, on the offensive side, to me, one of the most interesting storylines is the introduction of Carlos Strickland into what you already mentioned was basic, is basically a all systems go offense. Um, and pretty much everything is back, and then you add Carlos Strickland. Is he actually going to be have a chance to have a big impact this season, or is he still is he behind you know a more experienced player at this point? Yeah, he is. Um, you know, we don't know uh, if he'll be able to break into that you know that five man upper level of receivers that Snyder likes to have, and really, it's most of the time it's four guys. Maybe he is the fourth, um, but they have three really good guys in Byron Pringle, uh, Isaiah Zuber, and Dominic Keith. Probably the fastest trio of receivers K-State's had in a long time. And Coach Snyder said at Media Day, the thing he likes about them is, um, you know, two of them were new last year in Pringle and Zuber, and they've come in for their second season now playing faster. They're not faster, but they're, they're, they're just playing faster because they're so much more comfortable. We saw Pringle really blossom as the season went on. Had huge touchdown catch, catches against TCU in the last regular season game, and then uh, A and M in the uh, bowl game. Um, very fast, very strong. Um, and if if they can get Strickland up and running, so to speak, get him into the system, and maybe they just design some uh, situations and plays for him. Uh, having that six four, two hundred pound guy that can uh, give some defensive matchup problems and run well would really be something K-State rarely has. you got to go back a while to find a guy like that. So other schools in this conference have them all the time. K-State's known for the Tyler Lockets, the little guy 
that is extremely disciplined in route running and, and makes, thing hap- makes things happen. They don't usually have that guy that can just go up and get it over the top of everyone else. On that note, how much will having a healthy shoulder impact Ertz's ability to make the most of these guys? I, he looked... Uh, you, I mean, you wouldn't have necessarily known his shoulder was dinged up, in, like in the A&M game, for instance, but uh, well, how's that looking so far? From all accounts, great. That, you know, by the time he got to summer workouts and seven-on-seven stuff, uh, he looked fantastic. He, his shoulder was still so bad after that bowl game that it required a, a surgery that left him, you know, in one of those slings that you can't move your arm with for much of the offseason. And then he couldn't really do anything in spring football. He didn't throw the ball of any substance or take any hits. Uh, it was all mental reps for him throughout the spring. Um, so he's supposedly very healthy now and has more zip on the ball than ever before because, of course, the last time he was truly healthy was a couple of years ago because he's now had a, a severe knee injury and a severe shoulder injury in the last two seasons. Um, so we really haven't seen Jesse play comfortable in the system and knowledgeable, you know, those things, uh, and healthy at the same time. And I think that really carries a lot of optimism for Kansas State as a team and, and also for the fans. Uh, but also you got got that little devil on your shoulder that tells you he's been injured the last two years. Can he stay healthy uh, in Bill Snyder's system in which the quarterbacks are exposed to a lot of physical punishment? Colin Klein couldn't stay healthy. Jake Waters couldn't stay healthy. You can go through the history. Um, almost nobody has stayed healthy at quarterback in this system because you do take a lot of physical abuse, and, and that probably puts a lot of pressure on the backups to be ready to come in. I imagine that in the old man spa clubs in Manhattan, there's a corner filled with young guys that are all just former Snyder quarterbacks getting treatments in the corner. <laughs> with that, uh, that are 30 years old, but they have the body of a 60 year old man. Yeah. Yeah. Just, they're just like slowly bending over and, and taking a seat next to a, some it's, like 67 you know, year old retired guy. And I tell you what, I think a lot of it's a function of the equipment. It, if you go back and look at some of those old school photos, and I say old school because I'm talking, you know, 97, 98, when Michael Bishop was the quarterback and the whole Wildcat offense, so to speak, was developed for him. His shoulder pads were big. He looked, he looked like he's wearing linebacker pads or, you know, certainly more substantive than they do now. And the quarterbacks are so stripped down so they can throw the ball all over the place. And I think it really makes them suspect to shoulder injuries. And that's exactly what we've seen with Ertz and Waters. Uh, and Klein, um, and you know, we saw it before with Beasley and other quarterbacks at Kansas State landing, so, you know, straight down on that shoulder where it jams it into the socket, uh, which is a pretty common quarterback injury. Now that has happened regularly for K State quarterbacks in the run game. Well, you know, we're seeing football embrace rugby tackling. I wonder if at some point we actually see the league start going in a different direction instead of trying to invent better equipment, just taking equipment out of the equation. You can see it in rugby, but you can also can see it in sports like cricket. They found that players were actually safer when the game was more dangerous because people would play differently. You can't take huge running shots and lower the crown of your head if, if you're not wearing a helmet. Right. I think those helmets provide a false sense of security, um, that they can use them as a weapon uh, when really that safety is fairly limited, as we now know with all the concussion research. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, but let's just wrap things up with just your uh, 
I actually asked Bill Snyder this question last year, and, and he refused to answer. It, it was <laughs> typical. Um, who do you think is going to be the guy that surprises everyone about Kansas State, where everyone's like, oh, where'd that guy come from? And, and he just unleashes a horrifying well, season for everybody else. I don't, you know, it's hard for me to estimate how much this guy is under the radar because he shouldn't be, but I feel like he is. Um, because, and, and honestly, he may not even be K-State's starting running back. Alex Barnes was as good a running back as there was in the Big 12. Uh, when he was, you know, he was never tackled for a loss last season, averaged about seven and a half yards of carry. He just, he had to, you know, the coaches wanted him to grow into the system and, you know, he had some older guys in front of him on the depth chart that they liked and did everything right in practice, but maybe weren't as physically gifted back to what we talked about early on. Uh, and then he got in the games and they saw that he was doing everything right. And eventually they trusted him. I think we'll see him and Justin Silman going in and out quite a bit. If Alex Barnes can stay healthy, um, he's going to be as good as a running back as Kansas state has had. And there's been some pretty good ones. Uh, since Darren Sproles, and that is a lot to say. And they're much different running backs in the fact that Sproles was the typical little K-State guy that got the chance in Manhattan, Kansas, that nobody else would give him uh, and turned out to be a superstar. Alex Barnes fits the mold at you know, 6'2", 200 pounds, 220, whatever he is, and he plays bigger than that uh, as you know, a fast, big, strong NFL-style running back. Keep an eye on him, folks. I, I think when you watch him, you will know immediately that this kid can play. Uh, actually, on that note, just one more question. Okay. If if uh, Barnes gets, I don't know, his chance, 200 carries, something something to that extent, Jesse Ertz stays healthy-ish, can this offense be the best we've seen from Manhattan this decade? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to go back to 2003, like I said earlier, when L. Roberson. Well, and, and, we'll say this. We'll just say this decade. Yeah, um, it could be. It really could be. They've got answers at receiver, uh, running back, quarterback, and let's not forget they they returned four starters on paper, but the fifth starter started games last year. Uh, at you know, they lost one of their guards, and the other guard spot actually rotated between the two guys that will be the guards this season. So they're. They're very experienced all across the board, and I don't think there was any surprise more on this K-State roster or maybe in the Big 12 than the performance of that offensive line last year that was entirely rebuilt. Their one returning starter moved from center to right tackle, uh, and by season's end, that offensive line uh, was was really knocking it out of the park, and you know, left tackle Scott France, France absolutely shut down Miles Garrett in the bowl game. And he was a redshirt freshman. So they've got the line to lead the way blocking either for the run game or pass game. This offense could really click for the Wildcats this season. Uh, and I, I sense that they'll spend those first three non-conference games trying to carve out an identity. Uh, and I know they want to protect Jesse Ertz and maybe the run game can do it. But the asterisk to that is for Kansas State's offense, for this Bill Snyder offense to fully function, you have to have that quarterback run game. You can't just have the quarterback hand the ball off and then not be a participant in the play every time. He's got to be involved in the run game to keep that defense completely honest. All right. Well, that, it's going to be a lot of things to watch this year that'll be interesting for Kansas State. Uh, we appreciate you having having you on, Tim, and, and you let, letting us in on some of these uh, extra details of the team, especially that walk-on at strong safety. I'm going to have to look into that now. That's that's That would be so so typical. Uh, it would be. Thanks for coming on. 
It would be. It'd be so Bill Snyder to go find a, a key player from a walk-on JUCO route that nobody else wanted. Will, Tim, thanks for coming on and tell everybody where they can find you in your K-State coverage. Well, you can head over to GoPowerCat.com. Uh, we're there all the time doing K-State coverage on Twitter at, at LifeOfFits. So uh, I'm out there for everyone to find on my bizarre Twitter account. It's part work and part my life. Well, thanks again to Tim Fitzgerald, and that'll be it this week for the Expansion Candidate. You can find me, Ian Boyd, on Twitter at Ian underscore A underscore Boyd, or you can check out sportstreatise.com where I write about Big 12 football. I've got a post going up in just a minute where I dive into uh, some different theories on why TCU has struggled on defense. And then we also have a piece on the Kansas State defense and some of these questions that need to be answered. But I didn't mention that walk-on that uh, Tim told us about, so uh, that was a, a special nugget just for the podcast. Thanks for listening.